You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. We're underway. Uh, this is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv. I'm a professor of economics and of international and public affairs at Brown University. I'm with John Wood. John Wood is with Braver Angels. Uh, that's a national organization formerly known as Better Angels, uh, which works very hard. And I hope effectively, John, to promote uh, dialogue between Americans of different ideological and political dispositions in the interest of trying to promote comedy and uh, some kind of uh, national unity in the country. Uh, please amplify that description, John. Uh, tell people who you are that I left out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, Glenn, it's great to be great to be back on with you um, for the uh, for I think the fourth of our of our go round. So you're keeping a count, are you? Yeah, man. Well, this is uh, this is one of those things I get to look forward to every uh, every now and again. So, right, well, we we look forward to having you at the Glenn Show. I should mention the Glenn Show is sponsored by the Watson Institute for International Public Affairs at Brown University. But go ahead, man. Tell us who you are and what you're up to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am a uh, sort of a uh, spokesperson and a director of outreach and media development for, as you said, Braver Angels, nation's largest grassroots bipartisan organization committed to the work of political depolarization. Uh, but within that, I think building out the uh, building out the tissue of our civic culture in a way that allows individuals and groups and communities uh, to work together constructively across uh, across. Uh, political and, and just meaningful social divisions in general um, in the work of building up, again, um, our civic society, right? Our capacity to govern and self-govern um, as citizens in this nation effectively. And that depends, I think, on the quality of the relationships that exist between the American people. And so we focus in on recalibrating those relationships by promoting uh, methods and a culture um, of understanding and engagement across these divides. Your That's organization important. was born in the aftermath of the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Am I not mistaken? That's right. Election of Donald Trump and defeat of defeat of Hillary Clinton, two most polarizing political pre- presidential nominees in American history. Right. Okay. So how's that going? We're four years in, three and a half years in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, it looks to me like uh, RussiaGate uh, impeachment. Uh, uh, kids in cages, uh, Muslim bans, uh, uh, press our enemy of the people, uh, etc. And now uh, dominate the space and uh, call up the army on American cities as uh, people said to fire the stuff and uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize winners are saying uh, violence and looting are the same thing. Or if you call out looting, then you're engaged in uh, discounting the value of black lives. Uh, I go over a very far ranging uh, set of uh, features of American society right now to ask you, how's it going in terms of uniting Americans? It doesn't look like it's working out that well. Well, America is far from united. I mean, that's that's certainly true. And um, this is a course that I think we have been on um, for for some time. You know, I mean, we're in the middle of a perfect storm, I think of pre-existing tra- uh, trajectories that have resulted in just, um, you know, just, just a massively tragic uh, conflagration. Uh, you know, you have the, the obviously long uh, crescendoing political polarization, which has become uh, something that has 
um, has risen from the 70s and 80s and into the 90s to something that you can sort of see as a rising problem, particularly going into the impeachment crisis in the 1990s and, you know, Gingrich Clinton those days. But then, you know, going into 9-11, you start to spike under the Bush administration, the introduction of social media a little later on. And that in and of itself, I think, has intersected with a few more a few more factors there's of course covid-19 now you know that that set the country on edge made us fearful uh triggered a response from the government um a bipartisan response really right that aggressively sought to you know keep the american people at home for the sake of public safety but at the cost of what 40 million unemployed and and just sort of the the massive—I mean, you know, albeit maybe well, albeit well-intentioned, but the massive uh, repression of American day-to-day life, and that part of things, I think, sets the necessary backdrop to the racial conflict we're seeing at the moment. Something that nobody was anticipating, but the fact that at the same time, political polarization crests—you have fear in the country with respect to public health, but then that comes with mass unemployment and therefore mass uh, ma- mass idleness, more time for folks to dwell in, in fear and, and, and other things, um, you have uh, a match that's lit and that lights this, this trail of gunpowder that leads to this big keg of racial unrest and racial deliver, uh, division. And particularly just bitterness and anger, I think, in the black community that itself is sort of left to us at sort of a culmination point of this long history slash narrative. And I say history slash narrative, acknowledging the fact that there can be and perhaps is and is to one degree or another, at least a distinction to be made between history and narrative, even though they are there is a relationship um, that has been building, you know, I you could say over the entire course of the black experience to a moment in which one salient um, video um, of a cop, uh, you know, murdering a black man in Minnesota in just egregious fashion seems to, seems to encapsulate for, you know, so many people in general and so many black people in particular, sort of the entire character of the relationship that exists. So you're, you're prejudging the uh, outcome of this trial of uh, Derek Chauvin. Uh, you've already got him convicted of murder. Well, I can, I can, I can, that's not. I mean, exactly. no, no, let me just ask you directly. When I'm, Braver, let, Braver let, Angels let, promoting. Finish, finish hold, on, hold on a minute. Hold on. Only one of us could talk at a time. Okay. Braver Angels promoting comedy. Mm-hmm. Nationalist spokesman predetermines that the white cop in Minnesota is guilty of murder. I'm, I, you know, the casual, oh, man, the, hold on, let me finish my statement. The casual habit of talking in that way is inconsistent, I claim, with the putative objective of promoting comedy among Americans. It's buying into the very narratives that you were trying to problematize a moment ago. Respond. Yeah, yeah well, just, just to be clear about what I'm doing in this analysis, I'm speaking from the vantage point of what people are seeing in their own minds. I'm not necessarily giving okay. my Duly noted. My own, yeah, my own characterization. And so, you know, I mean, I'm happy to give you my opinion, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing here. Fair enough. Um, and so these, these, um, these streams, right, these, these psychological and material streams um, wind up intersecting at a moment in American life um, that stacks 
all of these crises on top of each other in a way that makes the result uh, more damaging than the sum of its parts, I think. Okay, so I, I wanted to, I'm sorry, go ahead. Please finish. No, no, no. That's just, that's just to say that that's where we are as a nation. And Braver Angels, even coming into its existence a couple of years ago, I think, you know, comes into – comes into the comes into existence um, at a moment in which we were already about you know ninety eight percent of the way there to this moment where we're at now. I don't look at all of America's problems America's problems as having started with Donald Trump, obviously, you know, um, or Hillary Clinton or you know that election. Um, but having said that, I do believe that this is a moment in which um, the foundation. I think for the reimagining of our cultural and social relationships and our approach to civic life can be consolidated in a way that begins to open up the lane for understanding what the future could and should look like. Right. And so I'm happy to speak to that more. Okay. Um, I have an alternative thesis. Sure. Um, the model the business model, as I understand it, of Better Angels, formerly Better Angels, not Braver Angels, mm -hmm. is that if we could promote a more uh, rational communal exchange in which people were to grant each other, in some sense, the benefit of the doubt, were to stifle their particular interests and passions long enough to hear out the other side, were to extend the presumption of equal humanity and dignity one to another across the divides of ideology, religion, and race, then the better angels of our nature would prevail. That is to say, then the possibility of constructing a politics that would not answer everybody's problem and answer every question, but would at least serve more or less well the interest of the people of this great country uh, could be realized, a politics of that sort could be realized. Now, to my mind, the reality, you're in Los Angeles? Yes. Okay, so I gather y'all have had some disturbances out there in Los Angeles. I gather people are throwing bricks through windows and walking in and stealing stuff. I gather buildings have been set on fire. I gather police have been attacked by bricks. I gather the police are doing some attacking of their own. Let me not just put it all on the rioters. In the midst of peaceful protests, there are probably some angry cops who are probably mistreating some people. I gather that there's a history of racial you know, going all the way back to Rodney King, going all the way back to Watson, 1965, and so forth and so on out there. So you know what I'm talking about. In yeah. the face of the collapse of civil order, mm -hmm. of the deployment of National Guard, of the extension of curfews, um, and so on, mm -hmm. what good is this happy talk of we can all get along if we could just get around the same table together? Doesn't one, and I, really, I mean this as a, I'm not trying to advocate anything here. I'm really asking you a question. Doesn't one ultimately have to do a careful analysis of the forces and interests that are at play and figure out where one stands? Uh, in this case, the maintenance of order. There's no way to maintain order in a city when people are riding without the use of force. Mm -hmm. This is a first order question about the governance of actual societies and not about uh, Catholic clutches in which people debate, can they get along? You have to maintain order. When order collapses, people have to decide what they stand for. So what's wrong with what I'm saying right now as a critique of the business model mm -hmm. of your organization? Well, the, the shortcoming in what you're 
saying, Glenn, is that it I, it correctly identifies attention, but I think represents it as a binary. And in so much as you're, you're that's what you're putting forward in my estimation, I think that that's a false choice. It's true that on the one hand, if you're going to try and set the stage for the American people to reestablish a sense of civic trust with each other, there is tension there between that and the fact that ultimately we have to come down where we need to come down, where our convictions lead us in terms of what we're going to support politically, what our stand is on on the protest, what our stand is on criminal justice, who we're going to vote for, Trump or Biden. That's intention with the project of building out the sort of cultural core of our democracy, of our civic society, in a way that says we have our dif- we have our differences, our disagreements. Let's build friendships where we can, but even where we fail to be able to do that, let's set the stage for us to be able to debate in good faith rather than tearing the system down, which is what people are literally trying to do at, uh, at, at this moment. There's tension between those two things, but they're not in conflict, right? The, in other words, both of these projects can exist. Both of these imperatives can exist at the same time. And we expect them to. That really is the basis of the existence of braver angels. The, the, the hope, of course, is that in creating space for the sum of empathy to expand between individuals and groups of different perspectives, that we create bonds that are deeper and more meaningful and in so doing stabilize the core of society. But that's not the only metric of victory there. If we can get people who come into a conversation hating each other and disagreeing with each, with each other to come out of a conversation, to come out of a certain exercise or program, um, still hating and disagreeing with each other, but realizing that they have to engage each other in good faith or else the entire stability of our culture and our, and our way of life is under threat, right? Um, that is a victory, and that is what we're striving for, particularly in the heat of the moment, politically speaking. It's why our major, at this point, um, I mean, we still are doing the uh, red-blue workshops, the, the the sorts of family therapy activities that have been the initial um, uh, core of our program activities. But right now, in the election context, um, our main activities, our main online events uh, are debates. Um, we have town hall-style Braver Angels public debates that feature the participation of hundreds of Americans from across the political spectrum um, every other week or so. And they're going to become weekly going into the month of going into the month of July. And in those debates, we set it up uh, to where the purpose is not so much a debate over over. It's not these are not scored debates, right? We're not picking winners and losers based on some criteria at the end of it. These are events that are intended uh, to strengthen the bonds between the American people, but through a rigorous pursuit of truth coming from both sides. And so the format is set up in a way to where demonization is not allowed, but we do expect people to bring their full passion, their full rigor to their arguments and also encourage individuals to be upfront and intellectually honest um, about where they might have doubts in their own position. Why? Because that culture of argument is, I think, necessary to having a productive civic discourse and the type of uh, deliberation that can make our the core of our civic society better functioning. But it can I offer uh, an observation? Yes, please. The potential for the success, as I imagine it, of the um, process that you described of bringing people together who disagree with each other respectfully, I think, depends upon a universal embrace of certain principles. 
which are not themselves up for negotiation. For example, reason, deliberation, and not violence is the way that we resolve disputes in society. Mm-hmm. Let me just put that forward as a principle. Um, for example, the results of elections, duly constituted elections, are the only source of the political legitimacy of the people who lead us. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the race of a person should have no significance in terms of the weighting or the valuing of themselves as a human being before the state. Mm-hmm. For example, um, uh, the rule of law should be sacrosanct and everyone, no one is above it. Mm-hmm. Principles like this. Right. So here's my question. My question is when, uh, for, oh, I, I mean, I could have gone on with my list. Okay. You have a right to your property uh, without fear that it's going to be uh, uh, despoiled uh, or vandalized by uh, someone else as a, a expression of their political sentiment, yeah. uh, et cetera, okay? You should be able to speak without being pelted in public by people throwing projectiles at you, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, when I'm in, uh, confronted with people who are violating those principles, who are prepared to use violence, who don't respect other people's property, um, who deny the legitimacy of the duly constituted institutions of order maintenance, et cetera. Uh, it looks to me like the whole enterprise of uh, us talking to each other across the table breaks down. I mean, uh, there needs to be, and, and, and so we're in that, in that state. This is what I'm uh, alleging. Yeah, we are sliding into a state of exception. A state in which the basic preconditions of society are themselves at question. Mm-hmm. And I just want to understand how it is that you and your organization uh, respond to that. I mean, do you agree with the way that I've characterized it? And what do you say when uh, participants in your enterprises would appear not to affirm those basic principles that I was delineating? Mm, right. First of all, I think that I agree, or at least I I highly sympathize with your analysis of the threat of the moment, that certain essential commitments uh, to rule of law, freedom of speech, that is to say also the, the freedom to speak your mind and have an opinion, not just to avoid reprisal from the state, from the state, but to avoid the judgment and the, you know, the viciousness, viciousness of the mob, you know, these are both threats um, to our ability to think and speak uh, freely uh, yeah, all of these norms are crumbling right now. And if you are telling me that you think that in the midst uh, of a flame-riddled riddled riot, um, that it is probably not wise strategy to, you know, uh, to, to, to set, up, uh, set up a picnic table and invite folks in the vicinity to uh, join you in a tea party, well, I would agree with you. Um, but that's not, that's not what this is. I would contend that the thing that gets us to this moment is the lack of appreciation for the fact that the norms of civil society, the norms of a free society, are things, the acceptance which in the general public and the general population, particularly in a nation as diverse and complex and as socially uh, uh, fractured historically as ours, is not something to be taken for granted. That in the level of civil society, we should be and should always have been actively building out our our apparatuses, our capacity to bring people into further understanding and deeper commitment 
of the value of these stabilizing civic norms in the first place, so as to allow for a cultural and a social integration that would have prevented, that could prevent the larger sorts of upheavals that we see now flaming up in stark relief in the first place, right? Now, you might say that, okay, but where does that leave us in, in the moment that, that we are in? Braver Angels' role is not necessarily to be out there putting out the fires that are literally blazing in the streets. What we're seeking to do is to hold the flame alight for civil society, for a civic society that genuinely has the capacity to integrate very tension, frictious views so we can build and now have to be in a position to rebuild from the downfall in at least with respect to a certain significant portion of America's way in life and prosperity from here. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't intend to have an impact on the present moment. We absolutely do. But in highlighting and mentioning the fact that the failure of this moment in America to me is at least in part a failure, uh, our having taken for granted the idea that people should simply understand these liberal norms, you know, when they clearly didn't, and that our culture of political communication was outsourced to pundits and politicians whose business model it is to highlight social and political uh, divisions between us for their own power and their own and their own gain, whether consciously or just rolling with the patterns of, of institutions. We do plan, and I plan, and I am making a case actively, even to folks who are out there, um, you know, wiling out a bit, uh, that ultimately you are, if you are a black person, just for instance, and I, you know, I say this obviously as an African American myself, somebody who lives in the inner city and so forth. If you are, if you're a black person, you're upset with the way America has treated, the way you see America as having treated the black community, um, the path of, of response to that uh, is, is to engage with the full power and force of your voice, your convictions, your intellectual arguments, and work with folks to be able to change those things that you feel need to be changed, to win the arguments that lead to change. If you pull down America, you're pulling down the very thing that your ancestors suffered and sacrificed for you to inherit and for you to continue, right? Because in the black community, we have a tradition, and this is said in different ways, and sometimes it's said in ways that might strike you, Glenn, as more or less intellectually honest. But I don't think it's unfair to say that African Americans, uh, as much as anybody else, help build America, not just in material terms, but in terms of advancing the moral progress of the nation over time in a way that uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones at 1619, for all of our disagreements with her, you know, she says something here that I think even if I don't even if I take issue with the way she phrases this, uh, she is she is right. And it's something I would say all day long. African-Americans have helped the United States of America come closer and closer to the ideals laid out in the Declaration of Independence. That's real. And so for black people to be in a place to where out of anger, bitterness, frustration, some of us might want to pull down the system. Some of us might want to pull down some of the things around us. I'm not saying that this is generally true, but it's true enough for me to say this and true enough to have an impact on what we're seeing. Um, I can understand it and I would empathize with it. And I can explain empathizing with that point of view uh, momentarily because there's a difference between, between empathy and sympathy, right? Nevertheless, we are pulling down the inheritance that our own ancestors have left to us, right? And so to broaden that out um, beyond just the black community, 
in seeking programmatically through our debates, through our workshops, so on and so forth, to provide the tools and resources by which we can begin to exercise our civic muscles again as Americans in the manner um, that in, in the manner that reacquaints us with what democracy is supposed to feel like, right? We nevertheless need to make a public argument to people in terms of what it means to be an American in the first place. What does or should bind us as Americans, even in the midst of national chaos, there's still an argument to be won here. But I don't fundamentally see it as an argument of left or right. It doesn't mean I don't, don't veer more closely in my policy directions, uh, policy points of view, and other cultural values uh, one way or the other. But it is to say that there's a public argument that needs to be made in terms of what it means to even be an American, right? Because if we don't share that, um, then the then the preconditions for our being able to unite around how American society ought to operate on a civic level um, becomes becomes something that fades out of reach. And so we seek to have an impact on the present moment in that way and to set the foundation for a brighter civic future. Well, you know, I think it is an argument between left and right, actually. And I think that's where I, I part company with you guys. I think you basically have to pick sides here that this is war, this is about power. Uh, that uh, invocations of community that people like David Brooks at the New York Times are given to make, you know, can we all get along? You know, let's have a different kind of sensibility about community uh, have had their day and that that day is gone that the advent of social media and Twitter, that the advent of cable news and Fox News and MSNBC, that the advent of Donald Trump, uh, he's, of course, uh, uh, not a constructive force here, but he's not the only thing that's going on, um, and uh, whatnot, have left us in a place where, uh, so I, w- I would delineate two areas where I just think you have to make choices and you have to choose sides. Uh, one of them is about America. Uh, you, you invoke Nicole Hannah Jones, the 1619 project. Yeah. I see an America that in the 20th century defeated fascism in Asia in the Japanese uh, war mm-hmm. and defeated fascism with the uh, help of the Russians, uh, uh, and the allies in Europe, uh, in the uh, war with Germany. Defeated fascism in the 20th century. That's the America I see. I see an America that faced down the Soviet Union in a nuclear standoff. On behalf of, you know, quote, the free world, close quote, vis-a-vis communist totalitarianism. And I think if you did a poll, anybody of the hundreds of million people in Eastern Europe who were under the boot of the Soviet Union for a half century and you ask them how they felt about it, they say, uh, hallelujah, thank the Lord, 1989 was a good thing when the Berlin Wall came down, the right side of history prevailed, mm-hmm. et cetera. I see an America that was capable of reforming itself in an almost unprecedented way, given the burden of uh, centuries of racial domination, slavery, et cetera, et cetera, in constituting completely transformed institutions mm-hmm. at every level with respect to the question of race and the incorporation of the descendants of slaves into the republic. No, it's not perfect. It's not complete. It's pr- practically, historically unprecedented as an example of the capacity of a democratic society to reform itself. No, it's not perfect. Yes, there are rogue cops, et cetera, et cetera. I'm aware of that. But my God, can you have some perspective? Can you think about what America was like in 1930, what America was like in 1970? It's a different country. Okay, so the idea that it's up for grabs, whether or not Fidel Castro's machinations in Cuba warrant our respect, the idea that it's up for grabs, whether or not America should be spelt with a K, 
The yeah. idea that it's up for grabs whether or not uh, the institutions, the Constitution, the founding of the country are something that we want to, that we deserve to celebrate or that we should have uh, the ultimate skepticism about. I choose affirming the historical goodness of the American experiment, warts and all, over uh, uh, America ain't shit, which is basically the message that I'm getting from the left. Okay. The other issue, uh, let me just finish this little soliloquy and I'll be done. The other issue is on race. Okay. We're going backwards on race. We're essentializing race. Identity politics is simply bad. Braver angels should be forthrightly against it. Sorry, forgive me. I know it's not my role to tell you what to do. (laughs) Identity politics is bad. The color of politicians is irrelevant. Full stop. The color of the skin of a politician is irrelevant. The only respectable theory of democratic representation is that we elect people who represent our interests. Our skin color is not our interest. Okay. That Martin Luther King, it's laughable now. Uh, uh, Al Sharpton is going to have a march on Washington, which is the whatever 57th anniversary of the real march on Washington, uh, where King, I have a dream speech is now no one even takes it seriously. I dream of a country in which race wouldn't matter. Come on. Uh, Joseph Biden's platform declares that race-neutral solutions don't work. David Brooks writes in the New York Times just this morning about how reparations is the answer. Mm-hmm. Stacey Abrams is telling us, in effect, never mind, I, I go on, I rant, and let me stop. Let me stop. All I'm saying is there are principles. Transracial humanism, race doesn't matter, colorblind society, that's the right idea. America as a force for good and freedom as a banner worth marching under is another idea. I say they should be defended forthrightly against the relativizing critics rather than splitting the difference with them. Mm, Right. Now, let me ask you a question, Glenn, because I want to see if I can't, if I, I suspect it is possible that you, that, that you and I are in part because I, I, it's hard for me to, see much in what you've just laid out that that I myself personally don't tend to sympathize with, right? And yet I'm doing what I'm doing and you're here making the case that um it's it's a bit Pollyannish, which which is fine. Um I'd like to ask you, what is it in what I have said here? What is it in what I have presented and how I have represented the work of Braver Angels that prevents that would prevent you from saying exactly what you just said. Um, and yet be in accord with what you see us as doing. Because because what I've heard you say here is that you have an, you have the imperative, which I, you know, like I said, largely share, um, of standing up for an understanding of America which acknowledges the immense and exceptional uh, moral, political, and social, and other triumphs that America has accomplished for the sake of its own people and ways that have improved the world over the course of the greater arc of its history, and that you won't back down from your point of view. What and what I have said here about saying that we need to build out the architecture to allow space for the American people to actually come and engage each other about the honest substance of their political political convictions in a way that allows us to do that in a manner that builds up the core of civil society rather than have, having us retreat into our corners to tear everything down. What about your convictions is at odds with that strategic objective, with that, with that work? I suspect that what you're, what you're responding to is less any real contradiction there 
and more a, a what I would consider to be actually an understandable um, that you are expressing more of an aversion to the idea of even having to stomach stepping into a a a professed or or what you might fear to be a feigned congenial context with folks whose views are antithetical to everything you laid out in a desire to engage in that work of civic architectural building. And yet, to me, Glenn, that is the very damn point of America and our constitutional system, along with the other things that you have laid out. But at the base of that, the reason we've even gotten this far to accomplish those things is because our founding fathers had the wisdom to set up a constitutional framework that did not presuppose that we would always be amicable, but that recognized the the need for us to be able to come together across the extremities of our ideological differences in a context that could move that friction into something that looks like progress. And that's what we're trying to defend here. So I ask you, Glenn, what, okay, is, I'll answer. what I, is the conflict I, between you and me here? Very well said and very passionately expressed. And I appreciate the question because uh, you got a point. Um, I think you have put your finger on something about me. This is personal. <laughs> that is is correct. I'm angry and, and okay. I don't want to talk to the other side because they've got their heads up their butts. <laughs> and that obviously is no way to reach compromise and to live in a world in which you're able to get along even if you can't agree. You can't even agree to disagree if you're not willing to sit down with people and disagree with them. Okay. So I, I take the point. And I, and I guess I think, it, it, you know, this is not really more, any more of a defense. It's more like a confession and an explanation that the reason that I'm so uh, militant and so uh, disinterested in the conversations that you want to promote, uh, God love you, uh, is that I feel like my side is losing and, and I think it's a catastrophe. I mean, I think that actually, you know, again, you invoked uh, Hannah Jones, I mean, uh, favorably, and you said about the essay in the 1619 Project, at least it affirmed that our African-Americans have contributed to the process of America realizing its potential. That potential is something that's to be celebrated. African-Americans can be proud and take credit for uh, pushing the country toward realizing its goals. Uh, but but I think that the, the tenor of the times of which the celebration of the 1619 Project is a part, I mean, I read every essay in the whole uh, publication. I read what they said about capitalism. I read what they said about prisons. I read what they said about culture. I, you know, I read what they said about American history, about American politics. Um, is an antipathy to the project, uh, which is uh, fashionable amongst a certain uh, cadre of elites on the coast of this country, uh, and a reaction against the tectonic plates that are shifting in American political culture, of which the election of Donald Trump in 2016 is a particular instance, but only a particular instance of it. Okay, I'm talking about the Second Amendment. I'm talking about the right to life. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about uh, the autonomy of the states and about the, the arguments that people are having about uh, the implications of trade and about where, you know, the constitution of the country, who should come across the board, who can be a citizen. Uh, I'm talking about uh, we want our country back type rhetoric and make America great again type rhetoric, inspiring 20, 30, 40 percent of the country, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and I, I feel like the wrong side, I mean, I'm an intellectual, so I, I, you know, it's more about what books are published, what's in the New York Times, it's more about what's the uh, tenor on the campuses, and what's in the elite uh, uh, media, uh, and so forth. This is what I consume, and this is what I see. Um, I feel like a, a kind of a subtle uh, uh, degrading of the respect for the institutions and a, a sense of a casual contempt for uh, the complex, uh, 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 you know, uh, evolution of uh, the American civilization that we are embedded in, and a kind of easy repairing to certain nostrums and, and and platitudes about race, white supremacy. 
I think the phrase should be stripped from the vocabulary of serious people in public discussion. What do they mean by white supremacy? How do I, I, in fact, I could ask you that question, but it's a little small question. Uh, how can you possibly have a conversation about race in which you begin with the idea of white supremacy? Have, have you seen some of these uh, public demonstrations where white people are getting down on their knees and, you know, thank, and asking for forgiveness, you know, and all this kind of crazy. I don't know how that's, you know, conceivable, et cetera. But anyway, straight answer to you. I think the wrong side is losing the argument. I think American civilization is in trouble. And the reason I'm not willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the other side is because I think this basically is a fight to the death. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And of course, you know, it's, it's possible that we can have a fight to the death where everybody dies, right? It is possible for two sides to go to war and for one side to win, but for everybody to lose, you know, call that a Pyrrhic victory. Actually, I, I tweeted that yesterday. Um, we don't want a Pyrrhic victory. And on the conservative side, we probably wouldn't even be a Pyrrhic victory, probably just be a Pyrrhic loss, just given, you know, what you've just, just laid out. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I return to the foundation that says that this, this edifice needs to be built out in order for the country to win and to at least win over time. But, but let me, let me, um, let me speak now from a more personal, um, vantage point. Actually, let me speak now as a Republican, as a conservative, and as an, as an African-American, and perhaps, um, you know, and perhaps the reverse order of those things is more important, right? Um, let, me, let me say a little bit more about what I believe in my subjectivity. I am a person who believes that the United States of America truly is an exceptional nation, historically, all the way up until up until now. Um, sometimes the phrase American exceptionalism seems a bit too cavalier in the way it's thrown about. What I believe is that the United States of America was the first and only uh, nation, um, you know, to impact the thought and culture of the world founded on an ideal as opposed to tribal relationships, right? Uh, our mutual friend, uh, Jason Hill, 1776 Project, refers to uh, a professor at uh, DePaul University, I believe, refers, to the United Chicago, States, yeah. Yeah, refers to the United States of America as an ethical state. And I think that that's, that, that's right and, and, and beautifully put. There is a promise, you know, that looks forward um, to a more ideal arrangement of human relationships based on the presupposition of equal dignity and the idea that men who are free but also responsible, men who are free but also informed by virtue, can govern together in a way that allows for differences to still mesh in the direction of pursuing the common good, right? And so our constitutional framework was set up around those ideals, and Martin Luther King Jr., I believe, uh, was morally powerful in his vision in large part because he situated it, even in advocating for equality for African Americans and all Americans, he articulated and expressed this mission as a continuation of that American legacy. And so as a conservative and as a black, as, and as a black conservative, I seek to conserve that. I seek to preserve that core, um, character of the United States of America and to defend the understanding of America. Um, from those points of view that would that would deny the significance of that truth or misunderstand that this is true to begin with, 
So you and I are allied against the ideological forces uh, that seek to obscure that true legacy of what the United States of America actually is. But when I say that I am opposed to the forces that do that, I make a strong distinction, which I feel is also in keeping with the substance of King's nonviolent philosophy, between being being opposed to those forces um, and or being being at odds with those forces and being at odds with the people who are themselves the vehicles of those forces. And I think that that is the moral difficulty that that grips many folks in trying to sort of get a handle on how you, on the one hand, can be firmly in defense of America and the way you and I understand her, Glenn, and on the other hand, being willing to engage in processes that bring you, that threaten to bring you closer and even intimately close with people whose, whose philosophical points of view may go radically in the other direction. Um, and yet, I perceive both a practical necessity um, for this sort of an attitude that is, it is, that is itself wedded to what I believe is a larger moral truth. The practical necessity is that, and you know, you can reference the work of Jonathan Hyde, or you can just look at wisdom literature to, to make this case. Um, but human beings are creatures who are, I believe that we are driven. You can say that we're driven by our emotions, but we're driven by our moral intuitions. We have a sense on a gut level of what is right and what is wrong. And even for sophisticated intellectual um, folks or people who present that way, so much of the time our intellectual positions are merely defenses of our much more sort of um, uh, viscerally generated internal emotional dispositions. And so when I see somebody making a sophisticated intellectual argument in favor of the idea that the United States of America is merely a a racist white supremacist state, I can look at the argument and find aspects of it to be wrongheaded or even repugnant. But I could look at the human being and say, well, there's some emotion that derives from some experience here, and maybe some of it is corruption, but maybe a lot of it is just a consequence of how this person came into and was raised in the world. And I think that this is the value of borrowing from the gospel wisdom, which asks us to not not judge others, to not judge others in personal terms, right? But to be willing to judge in our own minds um, that which that which is or is not that which is or is not uh, of the Holy Spirit, right? And I'm not trying to get too theological. What I'm saying, why not? Is well, actually, I'm, I'm happy to. I just don't want to get. I don't want to get out in front of the audience. Uh, you're making a long speech, and I don't want to interrupt it, but my only point yeah. is religious resources might be helpful to the project of Braver Angels. Well, I agree with that. You don't have to take a position on any particular faith to affirm the idea that the fact that people have faith might be a useful resource in getting them to sit around a table and not cut each other's throats. Well, no, that's ab- that's absolutely true. So in my in my presupposing that, you know, and uh, – uh, we we can jump to one of your uh, <laughs> uh, favorite uh, favorite foils, Mister Mister Coates, for instance, right? Um, I haven't read uh, Mister Coates's. I haven't read Tanaisi's uh, uh, biography, so I don't know as much about uh, where he comes from uh, as I should. What I do know is that uh, he finds himself, I think, um, very much um, gripped by his imagination, seized by, and now he is one of the great. Uh, 
uh, purveyors of a narrative of the American experiment and the black American experience that at one time in my life I found very compelling too and can still see certain truths within. And so when I found those narratives compelling in an earlier part of my life, was I, you know, was I coming from a place of, of, of malevolent cynicism or corruption? No, I heard a story that was persuasive to me. And I can see an intellectual pathway by which a person remains persuaded by a certain storyline on the basis of continuing to follow that trail into deeper and deeper places. Now, me being on the other side of that, I feel that I see where that, that intellectual journey takes you to places and causes you to bring other people to places where you don't really want to go. But that doesn't mean in myself that I benefit either Coates or myself or the project of democracy by having any contempt for Coates. I'm not saying you do or anybody else does. Well, I, I, actually, many people do. I don't think um, Coates is the issue. Uh, we've spoken about him here. John McBorder and I have uh, the Glenn Show. Sure. Uh, but just make it the world in me, uh, et cetera. Yeah. But, but, but I think person could have the, issue, the issue is uh, editors at the Atlantic uh, or the New Yorker or the Washington Post, uh, uh, you know, the New York Times Weekend Review or whatever, uh, publishers at Random House and uh, so forth, uh, people who book guests at uh, MSNBC and uh, so forth, uh, cultural barons, uh, university professors, uh, you know, people who write speeches for people who are running for Congress or governor in this or that state, that they read coats, mm-hmm. that they they buy a particular narrative, that they become an audience it's a little bit like the argument back in the day about how uh, the raucous lyrics and the uh, misogyny of hip hop was bad for American culture. And then it turned out that it was, you know, white uh, pimply faced teenagers uh, who were buying it at the mall uh, music uh, store and were driving a market for gangster rap that had nothing to do with the actual life on the inner city streets, but had to do with the imagined life uh, in the minds of the, you know, it's a little bit like that. The guilty white liberal who needs a narrative about race that allows them to assuage whatever psychological processes they have give rise to a market for the mutterings of the likes of ta Colts. And my concern is about the actual well-being of black people, mm-hmm. uh, not about the froth on the top of the waves of uh, American elite culture and how they're reconciling their own psychodramas about racial guilt, but about mm-hmm. the actual lives of people who are getting gunned down, gunned yeah. down by thugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, a half mile from where they live, trying to pump gas into their car at one o'clock in the morning. Somebody decides they want their BMW or they, uh, et cetera, and they put a pistol up inside them and blow their brains out. And the fact that we have a public discourse where the extirpation of black life in the thousands per year by exactly that means can't even be mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the handful of black kids who are gunned down by bad police officers becomes the defining feature of our racial discourse. Ta-Nehisi Coates is a uh, product of this diseased racial political American culture. I'm less concerned about rebutting him than I am about calling out the depths of uh, intellectual vacuousness and moral superficiality that's reflected in this fact. And that means that your priorities are in the right order, Glenn. But it still means that we have to ask ourselves the question, given that these are our priorities, that the lives of actual flesh and blood black people are what we care about. What is the most effective means by which we establish the circumstances by which society's thinking begins to shift so that the context in which we find ourselves mired in this never-ending spiral of material, political, and, and, and social, social decline that leads to all of these, these basement-level statistics that we all abhor – 
what are the what are, what is the approach by which we shift society's thinking so that that no longer becomes a reality so that people begin to change right and so that's where i go to next and the thing that i know does not work um is that if if we are to establish the civic base the civic foundation wherein a broader culture of discourse in this country allows for allows for the fluidity of reason in discussion to ultimately begin to stabilize out across the landscape. There's a certain way we have to engage each other to establish that. Straight on argument at all times as if every every day on the calendar was election day in a presidential election is not the way to do that. And yet that's the way we have been living for years. Now, there is a place for and obviously you excel in this uh, <laughs> much as anybody, but there there is a place uh, and there is uh, also particular moments where you have to throw caution to the wind and say, I'm making the bold stand for truth. I will die on this hill. And even if I lose the argument, I'm going to go down and fire and glory. People will remember it and the next generation will carry on. There's always a place for that. I look forward to those moments myself, man. I ran for office. I ran against Maxine Waters. You know, I, I, I debated her in front of a, in front of a public audience and, you know, didn't, you, didn't give an inch and, you know, uh, God bless her too, you know, got nothing against her, but I was taking my stand. Right. Um, and that's why we have elections. It, it, yeah, you're it making makes- a deep point. You're making a deep point. Excuse me for interrupting. Uh, I think we're going to be running out of time pretty soon. I just want to, oh, no. I want to congratulate you on making a deep point because it reminds me of when I used to be a better Christian than I am right now. And I can hear <laughs> my former pastor, Ray Hammond, the great uh, Reverend uh, Ray Hammond, Ray, uh, Reverend Dr. Ray hmm. Hammond, uh, Bethel AME Church, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and his co-pastor, his wife, Gloria White Hammond. And anyway, I mentioned them only because you put me in the mind of this, man. <laughs> because what would be said in the prayer uh, meeting on a Wednesday morning, okay, what I'd be praying for would be humility, okay? Right. Because what's it about when I'm prepared, because I know I'm right, righteously so, to smash the whole conversation in order to call out those motherfuckers <laughs> on the other side and consign them to the dustbin of history? Yeah. This is not about justice. This is not about truth. This is not about righteousness. This is about ego. This is about self-affirmation and, and whatnot. And I need to stifle that down and ask the Lord to make me a humble servant and to show me the way and to still me for a moment right here, right now, so that I can hear the other person and maybe his spirit will move in this moment. You know what I'm saying? It looked like you've been to church once or twice yourself. Uh, once or twice, but me too, man. Me too. And there's I, some I'm deep so truth in that. There's some deep wisdom. I mean, I know I started out asking you, what the hell are you doing wasting your time trying to talk to people? I want to close this out by acknowledging that I have a great deal of respect for the wisdom and for the courage of what it is that you're trying to do. And perhaps I don't have the discipline or the hum- humility to be able to join you, but I'm working on that. Hmm. Well, I hope that you keep working on it, Glenn, because you know me, uh, odds are always pretty good that I'm going to come back at you and ask you to ask you to step out of the comfort zone a little bit. Uh, to, 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 as I think I said in our first conversation, I'm looking to get you in the boat so you can start rowing too, man. So, <laughs> you know, I, uh, it's, it's a journey for all of us, Glenn. I mean, really, life really is, I'll get religious for a second because, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I am a, I am a believer. I do believe, uh, in the redemptive, uh, message of the gospels. And, uh, you know, salvation is a salvation of the spirit. It's finding a way to release your hatred, but not lose your grip on truth. And if we can do that, we can get to where we need to be. I'm going to let that be the last word. Very good talking to you, John Wood. 
braver angels, formerly better angels, uh, trying to heal the breach uh, and the partisan divide of American politics. Thanks for coming on the Glenn Show, John. Thank you, Glenn. All right, man.